So it gives me great pleasure today to uh, introduce our our speaker, uh, Shannon Phillips. And Shannon is here uh, feeling under the weather, so uh, she's made quite a sacrifice to be here today. So uh, we really appreciate that she's here. She's a very interesting woman who has done a lot of things. Uh, she's a journalist and a researcher and a communication consultant uh, and presently living here in Lethbridge, has been here uh, for a few months. She and her 13-year-old son, Finn, and her husband, Andy Davis. 13, oh, 13 months. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, and she, she'd have to have been a very early mom, I'll tell you, as a 13-year-old. And her husband, Andy Davies. And uh, so I think it's a benefit to Lethbridge that uh, they have moved here. Uh, Shannon is a research associate for the Parklands Institute out of the University of Alberta, and uh, that's what the information she'll be presenting today. And she has been uh, at the Women's Space Resource Centre, and I'm sure many of you saw the the announcements on the paper about the story of uh, Women's Space, and uh, it's with... uh, We'll have to see what all of us can do to make sure that that doesn't happen. Shannon uh, has, as I said, she's done a lot of things. She's been a frequent contributor to Alberta Views magazine, a producer at CBC News World, and a public affairs advisor to Canadian Red Cross. She's uh, supposed to be on maternity leave, but she's doing a lot of things. So uh, uh, she's a very busy woman and a very gifted and well-educated woman. And we're going to hear lots about the inequality for women uh, all over Alberta, but uh, and also especially some things here in, in, in southern Alberta as well. So it's with great honor I ask Shannon to come forward and for you to welcome her, please. I'm here today to share some research on women's economic inequality that I published to the Parkland Institute. And the research was uh, co-sponsored by the Women's Space Resource Centre here in Lethbridge. And um, I looked at uh, many, well, there are many forms of inequality. I looked at economic inequality, but there are others. Um, There is political inequality where we see the number of women elected to public office has stagnated in Canada. It's even dropped in some places since the 1990s. Um, and Women's Space has worked on those issues uh, um, in terms of uh, increasing civic literacy and civic participation among women. There are, are also other forms of inequality, social and cultural inequalities, for example, where we see body image affecting women's life chances and expectations that perhaps women are not uh, as intelligent as men in some fields or these kinds of things. They persist and and. Our culture is full of arguments and debate about whether these forms of inequality are getting better for women, they're getting worse, or if any of them are even relevant anymore for people of my generation and younger. But economic inequality is one that I chose to look at because I want to disabuse us all of the notion that progress on gender issues is steady and inevitable with respect to the economy. Uh, We have not reached the end of history when it comes to women's issues and there's plenty of work left to be done. I'd like to share a little bit of a story about that, uh, about this pervasive idea that there's no more work to be done for women. 
very intelligent woman, Indira Samara Sakara. She's the president of the University of Alberta. She's an engineer. She's a woman of color. She uh, is is kind of, I think, a poster woman, a poster child, if you were, if you will, for progress. Um, she is now one of the most powerful people in academia in Canada. She got herself in a bit of trouble last year when she told the Edmonton Journal that the low number of male students at Canadian universities was a crisis that merited her personal attention. Here was her quote, I am going to be an advocate for young white males because I can be. No one will question me. Well, no one at the Edmonton Journal questioned her because she made the claim that in 20 years we won't have any men as the heads of companies anymore because we had so few men enrolled in undergraduate programs. But if her claim had been fact-checked, readers would have learned that women went from 55% of the undergraduate population in 1993 to 58% in 2007, so that's 3% increase. But the number of Alberta women in management jobs, forget CEOs for a moment, in Alberta dropped by 1% from 35 to 34% of, of management jobs at the same time. And as for CEOs, a study of women heading large Canadian companies showed the number of women CEOs went from 4 to 6% in five years. So at that pace, her crisis of 100% female CEOs will come in about 97 years. It would seem that she can hold the histrionics for a few decades. So that's one reason why um, it, it, it was time to, to do a little bit of research on women, women's economic inequality because it persists. The other reason is because it is stark and it is glaring and it is real. At Women's Space, we work with women who live in low income and we see the reality of the stats every day. When you work with women who are just trying to do better for their families and their children, and when you see an economic system that does not allow them to get ahead, you feel it is imperative that someone put a scaffolding of research and public conversation and political momentum behind issues related to women in poverty. And that makes me mad and it makes me sad mostly because things don't need to be this way. So let's look at the problem. First, we need to establish that, in the, and this looks like a bingo card, and I'll explain it. Um, first of all, we need to establish that the 1990s in Alberta were terrible for women. Between 93 and 97, women's full-time, full-year earnings. So this is what one would consider to be a good job, working full-time and full-year. And I don't know why these are blurry. Um, those, those earnings dropped every year in the 1990s. Um, and then they, and men's earnings uh, roughly increased in those same years. The reason for this is because when government fires people, as they did in the 1990s and thousands, they are firing women. Uh, In the 1990s, Alberta reduced the size of its government spending from 25% of the province's GDP to 13% of GDP, which is the lowest in the country. So the, the, the Provincial participation in the economy uh, on the part of government is the lowest in Canada. And that's what happens to women's earnings when you do that. You see that it took a long time for women's earnings to recover from the cuts of the 1990s. And in fact, when you compare the numbers uh, between 1993 and 2003, you'll see that they are exactly the same. And they only started to grow after 2003. So it took a decade um, after that huge... Uh, retrenchment of government spending from the economy for women's wages to actually recover. And the oil sands boom, while it did increase, uh, and I like to call it the oil sands boom because that's what it was between 2003-ish and 2007 and what it probably will be again. Um, 
The oil sands boom actually does nothing for the wage gap between women and men. If you look at the earnings of women and men in full-time, full-year jobs, Alberta has the largest pay gap in Canada. Women in Alberta earn two-thirds of what men earn. The national average is 74%. So that's where Alberta, Alberta's the red line. Canada is the, and I, I don't know what happened to my x-axis. <laughs> we did a little copy and pasting from open office into Microsoft, into Mac, into anyway. <laughs> so, um, so the national average is 74%. That's the blue line. The red line is... Um, the Canadian uh, number, which is 66. And this also looks like a bingo card, but just look at the bottom year because that's 2007. And that will give you an, an idea of where we're at relative to the rest of the country. And you see that we're the ones dragging down the national average, with the exception of Saskatchewan. And that one probably, uh, their pay gap probably increased significantly because of the new investments in oil sands in northwestern Saskatchewan. Um, but there you see um, places that invest in things like child care and family benefits being primarily Quebec. They started doing that in the 1990s, uh, late 1990s, and you can see what's happened to the pay gap. Um, so one might make the argument that the wage gap increased between men's or uh, the wage gap between men and women's earnings increased because Men's wages were so high in the construction sector during the oil sands boom, and some of that is true. In Alberta, men's full-time full-year earnings were the highest in Canada during the boom. But earnings Canada-wide grew substantially between 03 and 07 for both women and men. Um, and yet some provinces have a lower, a much smaller pay gap. That begs the question of why that might be, and I sort of intimated a little bit of that with Quebec's investments in childcare. But let's dispense for a moment with the highly paid construction worker in Fort McMurray skewing the stats. Um, let's look at an area where most people think women and men have similar earning power, and that's university graduates. The pay gap between university graduates is as bad now as it was in the 1980s. Again, my ex-axis just disappeared. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's at 67% now, and in the 1980s it was in, in, uh, at 67% uh, as well. Um, and uh, th th this graph actually goes back to 1976. That's where it starts, sadly. Yeah, anyway. Um, so everyone seems to think that the workplace for my university-educated mother, who was in her late 20s, early 30s in the 1970s, was a much different place than it is for me in 2010. There are certainly more university-educated women in Alberta than there were in the 1970s, and there are more women in the workforce, but... Uh, the pay gap is the same, essentially, as it was back then. Another way to look at earnings distribution, uh, or at inequality, is to look at earnings distribution. This is all earnings, so part-time jobs, full-time, part-year, what have you, everybody's earnings. And you have almost half of women earning less than $25,000. The red is the women, the blue is the men. Uh, you have more than half of men earning $45,000 or more. Um, 25000 is just a slightly above the low-income cutoff for Alberta. Um, and if you have, especially if you have children for a community of this size, uh, the low-income cutoff is around 22000 So that tells you something. If women don't have a partner, half of them will live in poverty. And so we have a great deal of earnings disparity in Alberta. Uh, we've established that's the worst in Canada. So let's uh, look at what happens to women when there's no man in the financial picture. 
Again, Alberta has some of the worst outcomes for female lone parents in Canada. 24% of female lone parents in Alberta lived in low income in 2007 during the boom. The rate was 16% Canada-wide, so it's much, you're much more likely to live in low income if you're a female lone parent in Alberta than in other places. And female lone parents, hopefully, uh, yeah, uh, actually saw their incomes drop during the boom. And I'll, I'll uh, direct your attention to the last two columns. 19, uh, so you've got after-tax incomes. I like to, uh, StatsCan gives you both after-tax and before-tax. I like after-tax because that's the actual dollars that are in people's hands to spend. So after-tax incomes in 97 for a two-parent, two-child family uh, were $60,000, $27,000 for lone-parent women. And by 2007, that had climbed to a median income of 79000 for a two-income family and 34000 uh, for a female lone parent family. Um, and what you see is that that 34000 is less than it was in 2001. Essentially, during the boom, those earnings stagnated. The other interesting thing about this, if you want to get a little policy wonky with me, <laughs> is um, you see the impact of... Every year when federal, uh, federal governments in particular talk about tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts for low-income people, low- and middle-income people. And you, you see here when you compare the before and the after-tax numbers that those tax cuts haven't really made any difference at all. Between, the difference between what the before-tax income for a female lone parent and the after-tax, there, there's been no appreciable difference made by those tax cuts. That's because when you're giving someone a $5 tax cut, uh, they don't notice. Um, what they will notice is investments in programs. And, and that's where our social policy has been trending towards, is giving people tax benefits and tax cuts instead of actually delivering universal social programs. So, but it, it begs the question of why women did so badly during the boom. We know that women don't do well during the recession, in the 1990s, for example, when governments cut, we saw what happened to women's wages. Now we know that they don't do very well during uh, booms either. And you have to wonder why that is. That's just a, uh, a bit of a graph. The top one is your two-income families, and the bottom one is, is uh, female-owned parents. And you can see the stagnation. A lot of it has to do with the restructuring of the workforce in that two-thirds of minimum wage earners are women in Alberta. That's about 13,000 people. Um, I've got an article coming out in Alberta Views in May uh, in their labor issue talking about this very same topic. And I started the article with referencing the, a decision made by um, Thomas Lukaszak, who's the new uh, labor and employment minister. The first thing he did was he froze the minimum wage. It was, uh, they, they had started last year uh, indexing it to the cost of living. So the minimum wage is supposed to go up by 12 cents an hour, and he froze that. That was his idea of economic stimulus for small business. Um, but what nobody said was that he was effectively, when you, when you freeze a wage and it doesn't keep pace with the cost of living or inflation, what you're essentially doing is cutting wages for people. Um, nobody pointed out that his first act as minister was to cut wages for women, 13,000 of them. Um, women are 83% of the part-time workforce in the 25 to 44 age category, and those are our prime earning years. Of course, they're also the years when we're having children. 
And uh, overall, women are 70% of the part-time workforce. Now, this in itself wouldn't be such a bad thing if part-time work also came with decent benefits, job protection, um, uh, a better minimum wage, perhaps some uh, flex time arrangements or other arrangements written into the labor code to help women sort of enter and exit the workforce and, and better balance family and life and work commitments. But, of course, we don't have any of that. Now, one of the reasons why, uh, another one of the reasons why we have such a persistent wage gap in Alberta is that we, Alberta uh, has terrible family leave and family benefits policies and investments. Uh, we uh, share the worst family leave policies in Canada. We allow the bare minimum under federal law, which is uh, 50 weeks. Um, and that's if you're even EI eligible. If you're eligible for EI, you get your 50 weeks in Alberta. Now, in other provinces, what they'll do is they, they allow for an extra year uh, in some other provinces, and it's, it's different in different places. Um, but essentially, essentially, the standard among the larger provinces, that is to say BC, Ontario, and Quebec, the larger economies, um, is that there's a second year that one the, the same parent can take, for example, the mother can, can continue to take, or the father can take some time, this sort of thing, um, makes for a little bit more flexibility in terms of return to the workforce. Um, we also have no uh, uh, provision for family illness or family, uh, I guess, um, obligations kind of, of leave. Uh, for example, when you have a sick kid in Alberta, you have to deal and beg for time off, take your own sick days, do whatever you can do uh, to keep your job and uh, also take care of a kid who can't go to daycare. Speaking of daycare, um, one of the big reasons why we have a persistent wage gap in Alberta is that we have some of the worst child care policies in the country, and Canada, by, contra uh, uh, by extension, is uh, one of the lowest, um, uh, does some of the lowest investments for, uh, in child care in the industrialized world. So we allocate the lowest numbers of, of dollars for regulated child care spaces per 0 to 12 age child in Canada, and we have done since 2003, and only 17% of children aged 0 to 5 in Alberta have access to a regulated childcare space, and we're in the bottom three. Uh, our total number of regulated childcare spaces has not grown since 1992, though the population and the economy have considerably. They keep telling us how great we're doing. Um, and in 07, we spent slightly less than the province of Manitoba, despite our much larger population and economy. Now, here's... Uh, what we find internationally is that um, countries who value investments in, um, in uh, childcare, family benefits, that whole basket of policies that go on around the workplace, we find that countries that invest in those, those uh, policies have a lower pay gap, and countries that don't have a larger pay gap. It's very simple. The reason for that is that uh, those kinds of family benefit investments allow women more flexibility to balance work and life because, quite frankly, they are still the, the primary caregivers. Um, and when those work obligations bump up against family, generally speaking, family has to win um, because family can't be put on hold. And so you have things like uh, being able to move for a promotion. That doesn't happen as much. Over time, these kinds of things that you can't do um, in order to gain in the workplace, 
But in places where you have labor laws and other investments um, that actually recognize the fact that most families, and in Alberta it's 75%, have two people in the workforce that and, – and to – it, once social policy recognizes that we have a two breadwinner model, family model as opposed to a one breadwinner family model, we come up with different policies and we lower the pay, the pay gap. It's as simple as that. So I like to make sure that I, I impress upon people that women are not earning less than men because the boss is a jerk. Women are earning less than men because the government is a jerk. <laughs> And so you can hardly, um, you know, uh, blame Can- or Alberta or be too hard on Alberta because Canada as a whole does know better. Of 24 industrialized countries measured by UNICEF, Canada ranked last in early learning and child care investments. That was in late 08. That report came out. And here's an OECD graph that's a little bit blurry, but you get the idea. Uh, here we are at the bottom. We're tied with Turkey and Mexico. Uh, for So um, that's where we're at, and that's family benefits. So that's the sort of large basket of everything from family leave to child care, all those kinds of investments. As a result, then, you know, when, when uh, women of my age uh, say to you, uh, you know, I'm stressed, I don't have any time, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to manage kids and, and work and, and all the rest of it, uh, you can say to them, well, it's because you are stressed. And actually, you're accessing one of the worst pro- uh, uh, sets of programs and social policies in the industrialized world, actually. So let's talk a little bit about solutions. First, Alberta is alone in Canada in that there's no voice for women. Every other province and the federal government has a status of women minister or a policy secretariat or at least an advisory council on the status of women. We have none of that. In some other provinces, there are women's programs at the city level as well, such as in Ottawa, that are supported by the provincial government. We don't have that either. So that's an easy fix. We don't have an active women's movement, though there are amazing groups and amazing women all over the province. Um, Women's Space had a fundraiser last fall called Making Waves, where we honored three women who had made significant contributions to the women's movement in this province. We did that to highlight the fact that there are women toiling away, even though oftentimes they are not um, acknowledged or recognized. So we could do better at working together and actually having a women's movement. I think the labor unions should take a leading role in that effort because they have the, they have the three things that you need to build a movement. They have a vested interest, they have the labor force to do it, and they have the money. Political parties don't talk about women, or at least not as much as they should. In 2008, none of the platforms reflected a coherent analysis of the problems and solutions to women's inequality. Nobody seems to want to talk about social policy anymore because nobody wants to be associated with how the right has branded social policy, handouts or dependence on the system. They don't want to be crucified in the media during an election campaign for being big spenders. And that has to change because that is not a language that reflects the reality of intelligent social policy. It's actually a very mean, selfish, short-sighted, and actually very silly and immature way to talk about social programs, and we need to say so. And we also need to say so to the media who criticize intelligence spending on social policy or anybody else. In 2004, when I worked for the NDP, uh, the word woman was not in the 04 liberal platform at all, and it was only in ours because I raised hell. 
In 08, the women's equity fact sheet the NDP put out was kind of incoherent in a few lines. So none of the parties take this as seriously as they should. And I've worked for the NDP, you know, that's where my heart is, but they need to get their act together too, and it's unacceptable. In our political discourse, we cannot be afraid to name women as a group and that have specific and legitimate claims upon government. We need to make sure there's space open within our political conversations to, uh, so to make it okay to talk about women. When did this become taboo and why? Uh, and I think it's time to start putting up with the lie that women's work is done. It isn't. So in closing, I just wanted to return briefly to the real women in this community who live in low income. Uh, and we work with them at Women's Space Resource Center, and you saw that what's happened, if you saw the front page of the newspaper today, that Women's Space has lost its status of women funding, so we can no longer do this work. But when you live in poverty, it's really easy to kind of give up, to accept your situation, to believe that where you were at is inevitable, and it's where you'll always be. And that every day, uh, we at Women's Space, Tina, Dorothy, uh, and I, I saw women choosing between the utility bill and the groceries, women not being able to buy simple things for their new baby, having to tell their kids no for sports equipment or having to suffer the indignity of going to the food bank after leaving an abusive relationship because social assistance is so meager, and then going back to that relationship because there seems like there's no alternative. And when we look at the numbers, we see that there kind of isn't. I'd like to suggest to those women that their situation is not inevitable. In other provinces and in other countries, things are better because they elect better governments, they design better policies, and they expect better outcomes. I'd like to suggest that in terms of the industrialized world, you haven't bad in Alberta, some of the worst anywhere, and there's nothing inevitable about any of it. Thanks. <laughs>